0: It's good to see everybody here uh, this morning. Uh, as Dan mentioned, I'm John, uh, and it's, it's a privilege to be able to work with, with Dan here uh, at this church. And so for those of you who uh, have been with us or those of you who it's your first time, we're in our, it's the fourth message as we work our way through the book of uh, 1 Timothy. And we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Timothy 2 in the first seven verses. Uh, but before we, we go forward this morning, I do want to stop and give a little bit of the historical background and the setting of where we are since it really does impact the passage that we're going to be looking at and that we're going to be reading this morning and the the two books of Timothy and Titus are are often grouped together under what's called the pastoral epistles and it's Paul it's the last three books that he wrote and he's really passing the baton onto those that he's trained and he's leaving them with kind of final words of fatherly wisdom about how the church should be conducted and how things should be going forward. And based uh, as much as we can tell on church history, 1 Timothy was written between about 64 and 65 AD. Now, Paul had two imprisonments. There's according to church history, there's the one we end with at the book of Acts. Uh, where he had a couple of years in prison. And then it's believed that he was released from prison in Rome. Uh, Some believe that he went as far west as Spain on another missionary trip, and then was arrested again, and that would be his final arrest. And uh, church history also says that Paul died about 67 AD. So that puts the date of this book just a few years before his death. Now, The setting of this during that time is the height of the persecution of Christians under the emperor Nero. And we've all kind of heard about Nero. We associate Nero with Rome burning. And as best as we can tell that that's the case. And so there was a large fire that burned many sections of Rome. It lasted for nine days, and it killed many thousands of people. And the word on the street was that Nero wanted to build a bigger imperial palace, so he and some of his soldiers lit the fire themselves. And it's also said that he had this, uh, this special costume that he would wear to the circus and that he was sitting on the roof of the Imperial Palace playing the harp, dressed in his circus outfit and happily watching Rome burn. Well, of course that wouldn't be very popular for the emperor of the city to have set fire to a lot of Rome. So someone had to be the scapegoat For these fires that happened. And he found a scapegoat that people were willing to believe and that it was the Christians. And so Christians had really kind of been something that Rome didn't pay much attention to. They were peaceful, they went about their lives, and they didn't cause much trouble. But because Christians were dedicated to God, they decided that they weren't going to do the sacrifices to the emperor. They had affected people whose livelihood uh, was in making idols, uh, visits to temples where there were temple priests and priestesses uh, was being affected. And, and so the slave market and other things were being affected. So it was easy at that point to start blaming the Christians. And the stories of how he persecuted the Christians are, are, are quite horrendous. Uh, he would wrap them in flammable material and use them as human torches to light the night at Rome. Uh, he would take animal skins and wrap them around Christians and release wild dogs on them and let the wild dogs do what they would do. And so it's in this context that Paul's writing Timothy this letter and, 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 and really leaving behind the final wisdom. And so we find very practical matters but we also find the deep theology that's, that Paul is used to writing in his letters. And so it's in that background that I want us to pick up reading in First Timothy two, and we're going to look at verses one through seven, where it says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and in truth. And really, simply today, we're going to have two points. The first one is prayer for authority, and then the second one is authority in prayer. And at some point, I'm probably going to trip over this microphone cord, so that will be hilarious when I do it. So I will be laughing with you if you laugh at me. But the first thing we start out with is Paul says, first of all, And so if you're making a list and and you're telling something, you really want to get something across, you're going to start with something along the lines, okay, here's the first thing I want you to hear. Here's the thing, if you don't get anything else, this is the first thing. First of all, I want you to get this. And Paul is going to enumerate several things in the rest of the chapter of how he wants the church to operate. But this is the first thing that he wants to get across. And the next words are going to be four facets of prayer and what that looks like. And it's going to approach it from a different way. Now, depending on your translation, you may have different words than the ones I'm going to say. But really, the way I'm going to describe these come from the Greek definitions. So whatever your translation says, it's going to be the same thing as the ESV that I'm preaching from. And the first word is supplications. And the root there means to lack, to be deprived, to be without something. And this is the kind of prayer that comes from the fact that we need something. We may not know what we lack, or we may know what we lack and what we need, but it involves us pleading with God to supply what we need. The second word there is prayers, and it's a more general term that we see in the Bible. And and this term prayers is only used in reference to asking for something from God. So there's a sense of reverence and holiness in using that word. The third word is intercessions. And this particular word is only sparingly used in a couple of places in the New Testament. And it has to do with getting deeply involved. And it has to do with getting deeply involved with someone and something. And it can relate to advocacy, empathy, sympathy, or compassion for that need. This isn't a word of of separation or distance or trying to keep away from something. It's a word of getting deeply involved. And the final word there is thanksgiving. And this is a rejoicing in the privilege of being able to participate in this aspect of prayer. And also with thanksgiving comes the, the knowledge of, of God's sovereignty, that He's in control of everything, and that we can rejoice in the fact that even if we don't understand what's going on, that God is in control and ultimately works all things out for our good and for His glory. The second thing he mentions is for all people. And that literally means for all people. And it's those people that you don't like. It's the people that have hurt you. The ones that make fun of you. The ones who betrayed you. The ones that the very thought of them might make you cringe. Those fall under the category of for all people. You see, we don't get to pick and choose who we pray for. We love to pray for our friends. We'll sometimes come up to them and say, "Hey, is there anything I can pray for you today?" And we love to do that. But we don't often seek out prayer for the people that fall under all people that are those that we don't associate with or those that we may not like. And I can think of several times where God has brought someone to my mind. <clears throat> excuse me. And 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 my first thought is, "Okay, seriously, God, you want me to pray for that person?" And then I'll feel a little guilty about it and and I'll throw up a quick prayer, uh, Lord, be with be with so-and-so, you know, they're wrong, I'm right, help them to repent, in Jesus' name, amen, and then I'll go on about my way, and then I'll feel good that, that I prayed for that person, even though it was a very selfish prayer. Our prayers should never be exclusive or selfish in who we pray for. The next thing that Paul enumerates is for kings and for all who are in high positions. Now we're in a very politically charged time in America. We're in an election season, and election seasons never, ever seem to end anymore. It always seems like we're about to vote for something. We have a mayor, we have city council members, we have state and federal representatives and senators, we have a president. We may or may not have a new president coming up. Who knows? And and the point of this is, you don't have to personally agree with them. You don't have to like them. You don't have to like their positions. But what God is saying here is that we are to pray for them. And so, what, if you think about the people that you may not want to pray for right now, think of who Paul is telling Timothy and the church there in Ephesus who to pray for. Paul's telling them to pray for Nero the one who is rounding up, arresting, and martyring people that have likely been in their church. Paul is telling them to pray for Nero. And if we think we have it bad in America, we don't have that. So for us praying for people who are in high positions and those who rule over us, it really isn't that bad as we think about. Then the question follows is, okay, what are we to pray for in relation to these people who are in high positions. And Paul says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And what this is saying is that our actions and our attitudes wrap up in godly and dignified in every way. And this specifically is a prayer that, that we're to pray for the conditions around us, that it allows us to live a life that matches up with Christ's likeness. We're to pray that we we can be the ones that can bring peace and calm to a situation and not be the ones that are reactionary. And by no means am I saying we, we're, we're to sit back and let evil and society run rampant about us while we just sit here in our church and we pray and we let other things happen. That doesn't mean that we don't get involved and promote what's right and, and promote justice and goodness. But based on this, what I am saying is, is that we should live out the actions and attitude that are enumerated in Galatians 5 in the fruits of the Spirit. The love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Those are the things that characterize the life of of a believer that has been transformed by the Spirit of God. And too often we use prayer as a defensive weapon, instead of an offensive weapon. We pray that that evil would stay away from us. But do we pray that the light will come into the darkness? See, God is in control whether we see it or not. And since it involves God's sovereignty and rejoicing in Him, this aspect of prayer will stay forever. Now, I want to step back for a minute. We hear a lot of talk about, and read a lot, and hear a lot about being a pro christian society and, and secularism coming in. And, and for sure, we are surrounded by that. But we're not any more surrounded by that than Timothy was in this day when Paul is writing this letter. You see, as time has progressed, we've gone from, from where Christianity was, was the dominant thing and church and state got along together. And then we threw off Scripture and Revelation and tradition and the Enlightenment. And reason was going to make everything better. And so using our rational minds... We were going to usher in this utopia by throwing off the things that kept us down, and then we found that the reasonable, rational mind didn't work after going through a couple of world wars and a Holocaust. So we threw away rationalism, and then we got saw that the only source of our truth was left, and that was within ourselves, and that ushered in this age of post-modernity. And what we found is that has started to crumble too, because we found we can't even trust ourselves that what you think is right is different from what I think is right. And we've entered into this phase of what seems to be the new religion. And the new religion is that of politics. And we've become more divided and more divided over this issue of politics. I love how one pastor has stated it so well, is that we're all looking for the kingdom, but without the king. We're looking for the kingdom without the king. And that's certainly true of unbelievers, who may not know the rightful king and the king that can bring the peace that we want but I've seen it so true of unbel- er, in the church and in Christians as well is that we engage in this fight and for the kingdom with the same tools and the same weapons of warfare that the quote other side does as well and so what I would pose is in this fight against secularism in this fight to bring in the society that we know we can have we, what if we fought it with prayer? What if instead of engaging in fights on Facebook and Twitter and throwing things back and forth at each other, what if we prayed? What if we turned to prayer? And what if prayer was the consistent and dominant theme of our life as Christians? And what if God has led us to this moment in 2020 in America, where the experts have no idea what's going on, And in fact, the experts are wrong so often. And that what is upside down, and what if we're spiraling round and round, that none of us have any idea what's going on, for God to bring us to the point where there's no end in sight, and to bring us to the point where His people pray, and we get on our knees and realize that is the only way that society around us is going to change. And what if this confusion that we're experiencing is the exact time in history that God has chosen to purify His church and to purify His people and leave a remnant that's come to the end of themselves and they've said, I'm done, I'm turning to you, God. And what if the secularism and the big bad wolf of what's out there in the world isn't so big when it's compared to God and the presence of God? And we stopped looking to solutions for how to solve society And turn to God. And we sang it this morning. We sang, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. But I don't think we live that way. I know I don't. And what if prayer starts here? We prayed in the beginning of the prayer of confession to enter God's presence today. You see, all the great revivals and renewals in history have started with prayer. And most of the time it started with one person, maybe two or three who committed themselves to seeking the presence of God, and they just prayed. And the renewal and the revival followed. It always starts personal before it becomes something that spreads to society and around. And it has to start with us. And we say we want it, but do we really? Because if we did, we would be a church and a people that would devote ourselves to prayer. It only happens when we get to the end of ourselves and acknowledge that, Lord, we need you. We need to get out of our consumer church mentality of coming and taking and partaking and doing our church thing on Sunday morning. And we need to get into the battle of contending with God in prayer that things would change. And I am going to be the first one to tell you, I've been a complete failure at prayer. And I'm not going to let anybody think any different. And this has been a highly convicting message for me as I've read and as I've studied for this about my own failure in this area. I can tell you how to pray. I can tell you the reasons we should pray. I can tell you Bible verses on prayer. But I can tell you that I haven't been one that's done that. And and I haven't longed for the presence of God in my life. I say we want the presence of God in our church, but I haven't been one that's prayed like it and one that's lived like it. You see, praying like this, Paul says, is something that is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And the word good there refers to something that is deeply and intrinsically good in and of itself. It's almost as if God is taking this and saying, okay, see all this that I just said, I want to take a highlighter and I'm going to reemphasize this, that this is the way I want my followers to live in society. I want them to live as people of prayer no matter what is surrounding them because the way we act and behave in a society as a church is a reflection of our savior and of our lord and so do we have the attitudes and actions that the world sees that we have been transformed see if we're to have trouble in this world and second timothy 33 tells us that all who live godly in christ jesus will suffer persecution but is the persecution that we suffer because of the righteous life that we're living? Or is it because we're involved in fighting, quote, the other side? Our conduct and lives as followers of our Savior emphasize God's redemptive mission in this world. And Paul says it's this A desire for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, how do people come to know Christ? Through the Spirit of God. And how have we been promised to see that the Spirit of God will work? And that's through prayer. See, Central Hope Church isn't going to be one that's making a big splash because we have celebrities coming into church and TMZ's outside taking a picture of them. It's not going to be through selling millions of CDs and winning a bunch of awards because we have the greatest Christian band anywhere in the world. We're not Hillsong. We're not going to be selling top 10 books, likely. We're not going to be having cutting-edge services that that remake the mold of what a church service looks like. And honestly, I don't care. (laughs) I don't want that. But what I do want is a church full of people that when people talk about Central Hope Church, the consistent and dominant theme of when people say, Central Hope, oh yeah, that's the people that love to pray. And those are the people... That long to experience the presence of God, and they have devoted themselves to prayer, and God is present with them, and their lives shine forth the gospel of Christ. You see, prayer is hard, and that's why it's called one of the spiritual disciplines. And it's not a discipline in one of the things of of okay, if you don't pray, you're going to be in trouble. It's a discipline because you have to work at it. I remember about ten years ago when I was in residency. Uh, my wife and I lived in apartments that were right behind Lake Willistine and Maumel, And around the track of the lake, it was about 2.2 miles, so it was really easy to keep up with distance. And so I'd come home, we'd sometimes run together just to clear your mind, and, and it was just relaxing to do that. And we decided, okay, we're going to run a half marathon. Sounds fun. Well, going from 2.2 miles to 13.1 takes work. In Arkansas, you know, so you start adding miles and you start adding distance. That means you're going to run when it's blazing hot outside. And the marathon takes place in March. And it means you're going to run when it's cold, when it's raining, sometimes when the snowflakes are falling. And so you work your way up. And Saturday morning is when I would do a distance run. And so running 12 to 13 miles on a Saturday morning, a lot of things I'd rather be doing with my Saturday morning. But I got up and did it because there was a goal and something that I was focusing on. And the two years that I did it, it was so worth crossing that finish line. And it's very similar with prayer. You're not going to start where you are and become a four to five hour prayer warrior overnight. For some people in here, praying may just mean start praying, period. For some people, it may mean that you gradually start building up in prayer and you'd start working in different types of prayer. But whatever it is, start with a goal and build it into the natural rhythm of your life. Just as you eat and sleep and breathe, prayer should become a part of that rhythm of your life. That it's something that you just can't live without. And it's something that is in the fabric of everything that you do. Second thing we're gonna look at is authority in prayer. And Paul switches to a little theological inset here. It's one of very high Christology and one that's a great magnification of our Savior and the work of redemption. And he says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that sentence is loaded with such theological depth that we're still trying to figure this out fully 2,000 years later much less understanding it when Paul wrote it at the time. We can tell you a lot of things that it's not, and we really haven't improved on the definition of how we've come up with this since about 451. So a lot is loaded into there, and we won't spend the hours to fully unpack this. But it starts with, for there is one God. And so the church, if you're a convert from from Judaism and you're a Jew, you're like, absolutely, there's one God, that's Yahweh, I, I agree with that. If you're a convert from Roman society, You're like, okay, I'm taking this by faith that I put away my other gods, I put away idols, and I'm trusting that there is one God, and this is Yahweh. Okay. And there's one mediator. Okay. If you're a Jew, you're thinking, well, okay, yeah, that was the high priest, and I'm used to this going and sacrificing, and he's going to intercede on my behalf. If you're a Roman, this concept is there in your mind, and you're thinking, Okay, I've gone to a temple, I've done my sacrifices, given the stuff that I need, and there's priests and priestesses that I'm used to going through. And then it really hits the part that we've wrestled with for so long. The man, Christ Jesus. And you're thinking, wait, I don't, I don't have to go to a temple. I don't have to use some special prayer formula. I don't have to wait for a certain day, and I don't have to sacrifice. All, all I've got to do is pray. And Paul then continues describing this more about the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And this is what all the scriptures and the stories of the gospel and the life of Christ are about. You see, this, this, this phrase sets up an entire theology of prayer and allows us to experience the very presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And this verse is the basis for all, all of our prayers The man, Christ, Jesus. Because Jesus Christ came to be born of a virgin, to live as a man, to be without sin, to willingly die for me on the cross, to be buried, to rise again, to ascend and sit at the right hand of God the Father. It makes this possible. Philippians 2, the well-known passage says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus Christ momentarily and willing set aside all of his divine rights as king to be made just like we are. Hebrews 4, and another well-known passage, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and grace to help in a time of need. And I'd like to say this, because Jesus, our mediator, was the perfect union of humanity and divinity, this allows our prayers to be simultaneously human and holy. Our prayers like Christ can be simultaneously human And holy because of Christ. Jesus was tempted, but without sin. He endured loss, heartache, fatigue, hunger, thirst, betrayal, and disappointment. And although it's not written, I'm sure he had bad days at work too. It allows me to express my brokenness in prayer. It allows me to express my anxieties and my worries. It allows me to cry out why when I don't understand what's going on in my life. And I don't have to put on a facade to come before God, that everything's okay before I come to Him. It allows me to confess my sin because my sin has been paid for once and for all by the willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ for me. That's our authority in prayer, is Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Not because we've done anything for the Father to hear us, but because Jesus Christ has done it all for us. And he did it for me, he did it for you, and he did it for a world that is hurting and a world that's broken. And how foolish and how lazy of me to be content to come in and consume church and then to go home and have philosophical discussions about the state of society and the things that we should do and neglect the one thing and the only thing that's ever made a difference in society. And that's prayer. Paul wraps up in verse 7, and he says, For this, which is referring to the declaration of the gospel, I was appointed a preacher and apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And Paul's life, as we know, was a radical conversion from an enemy of Christ, a persecutor of the church, to one who devoted his entire life to teaching us, the, the Gentiles, the wondrous gift of truth and grace that's found in Jesus Christ. He passed this to Timothy who passed it to others, and so on and so forth, until we're sitting here today. So what should be the cornerstone of our church? It should be the gospel. And what is the gospel? It's the fact that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came as a man to take back humanity that was destroyed by sin through the only way possible. A perfect, holy substitution of His life for ours. See, our prayer is a mixture of the human and holy, just like Jesus Christ. And if we want to get serious about being the church, about being followers with Christ, it starts with this type of prayer. So what I would ask this morning is, do we have a holy discontent with the status of our own lives, our church, and our own society? That we need to stop being consumers of church and be ones that start contending And prayer for the presence of God in our lives, in our church, and in society. Do we long and do we yearn for the presence of God? Because once we've tasted the presence of God, we'll want more. And nothing else will satisfy that. There's no gimmick, there's no show, there's nothing else we can do in church that will satisfy other than the presence of God being with us. To put a note on what we started with with the story... Several more even vicious emperors followed and continued to persecute the church. But it didn't stop the church from growing. The church grew and grew and grew because they did exactly this. They contended in prayer for the presence of God to come. And then in 300 AD, there was the rise of an emperor named Constantine, whose mother was a deeply devoted Christian who raised her son that way, and it transformed an entire empire. And so we don't know how or when God will act, but we know God does act when his people get serious about prayer. And I've, I've never been accused in my life of being an optimist. That's never been one thing anyone has said. about me. I've been accused of being a cynic, a realist, a skeptic, all those things. But I believe that God wants to work in this society. I believe that God has brought us to the end of ourselves in this society. But the one thing, the one piece I see missing, is a church that's willing to get serious about prayer. I see a church that wants to do more and more for itself, but not a church that's longing for and wanting the presence of God to work in them. And so that's my prayer for us this morning. It's what I'm praying myself is that we would long for and experience the presence of God to transform us and to transform our society. So let's close in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you that everything good that we have is because of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that he came, that he lived a sinless life, that he took on and substituted his life for ours to pay for the sin that we could never pay for ourselves. We thank you for his conquering death, his rising again, the fact that that he now sits at the right hand of the Father, and he enables our humanly frail prayers to come before a holy God. And Lord, I pray that each of us here today, that we would get in the mentality that we long for the presence of God, that we would desire this, that we would be hungry for this, And Lord, I pray that as the Spirit fills us and as the Spirit works in the life of us and in our church, that we would be bold, shining examples of what the gospel can do in this world. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.